Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch. This time on uh, Film a Week from Two Film Geeks, we have Chinatown, which we watched a couple nights ago, so we probably don't remember. But anyway, uh, I'm here with Brady. Hi, Rob. And Tess, who kind of saw the end of the movie and just kind of laughed at it because it was too chauvinistic, uh, is here as well. Just not recently. All right. And uh, I think uh, we'll make Brady do the plot synopsis. Oh, God. I, I seriously can't. This is my first time seeing it. Uh, I think maybe you should, because I'm sure I will miss something. Hmm. Well. Okay, you want me to give it a try? Yeah. Like, Yeah. kind of have we done it before, like a movie that like you're not familiar with, you'll go all the way through it. I'm going to do that this time. So, what happens is there is a private investigator in Los Angeles... 1930s Los Angeles by the name of Jake Giddies? Giddis? Giddis? Jites. Everybody pronounces it different. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a man, played by Jack Nicholson. Which is funny because the first time I saw that before seeing the movie, the first time I saw the name, I was like, how do you pronounce that? Also, what is this? A 72 Roman Polanski film? Is that right? Um, 74. 74 Roman Polanski film. Yeah. And uh, historical context, this was well after. Uh, he his wife was subject to one of the uh, most horrific murders in American history by the Manson family. So he was oh. going very dark places. Who is that? that? Oh, Polanski. Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Uh, yeah, as if he wasn't already a what a Holocaust survivor. Yep. Anyway, Roman Polanski. So we meet Jake Giddis when he's uh, helping another friend with I think an unrelated fidelity matter. Uh. And so he goes into the other room, and there's this woman by the name of Rob. Help me, uh, Mrs. Mulraney. Yeah, Evelyn Mulray. And she says, "I think my husband is having an affair. Is that why she hires him to spy?" That's right. Yeah, yes. I think my husband is having an affair. I want you to spy on him to see what he's doing. So Jack Nicholson is following this guy, uh, Howard Mulray, all uh, around Ho L.A. Hollis. Hollis. I'm sorry. Uh, Hollis Mulray, no, pretty close. Yeah. all around L.A. We've also seen that there's a very angry, contentious city council meeting where there are big plans for L.A.'s water supply. L.A. is both next to an ocean. You can swim in it, you can fish in it, but you can't drink it. L.A. is also on a desert. Yeah, very okay. interesting imagery. Water, water everywhere. He publicly opposes the creation of a new reservoir. Yeah, that's exactly. So uh, then, at that point, uh, he comes back, I think, wanting to give uh, Mrs. Mulray the information about her husband, and he gets confronted with a libel suit, I believe. He takes photos. Uh, yeah, of he takes the, photos of him with of him. a young woman. Right. And, and they're so, published on the front page of the following day's paper. Yeah, yep. uh, much like our friend Eddie Valiant in... Uh, <laughs> And the very related Roger Rabbit. Uh, so, at that point, it gets revealed that Mrs. Mulray was a fake, a doppelganger hired by someone else, 
to have Jake expose her husband. And so Evelyn, the real Evelyn Mulray, says, I'm going to sue you. Yeah, he gets slapped with papers paper. on the way back from his barber shop. All right, uh, Rob, take over here because I remember parts, but I think I need some connective tissue. All right, so he's coming back from the barber shop and he's trying to tell them the joke about the Chinaman uh, and the way he screws. And um, uh, the guy's like, hold on, you got some serious business here. He's like, hold on, hold on, listen to the joke. And so, anyway, they're serving him with papers because Mrs. Mulray is like, who's played by Faye Dunaway? Um, uh, you have told me, th- you have told the papers this, and uh, that is uh, libel, sir. Libel's in writing, right? Slanders in speaking. Yes. Um, and, see, Brady should have chimed in with yes there, because he's a lawyer. <laughs> yes. But anyway, <laughs> um, the, okay, so from then on, some shit happens. Basically, Miss uh, Howard, Howard or Hollis? Hollis. Hollis. Hollis yeah. uh, Mulray gets uh, found dead the next morning. Um, Jake Giddy kind of sweet talks his way into there. And uh, it's fairly clear that he's drowned in salt water, despite the fact that he was found near a place where fresh water runs off. Um, drowned from a freshwater reservoir. Yes. And uh, then he goes poking around, and he goes down to the uh, coroner's office, talks to him, who's the one jolly guy. Everybody else hates Jake Giddis, but the coroner likes him. Um <laughs> And then things happen after that. I'm trying to think of what happens next. Can't really remember. Then um, he is confronted by a uh, water department security chief, Claude Mulvahill, uh, and a henchman played by Polanski. Oh, wait. That's when he's going <laughs> back to the crime scene. And at that's some when point he gets his yeah. nose cut. Right. And he's like noticing that there's just water running off in the middle of the night. And he's like, uh. And uh, he gets his nose cut. The next morning, he goes and talks to the water company about that and what's going on. And he's like, uh, you're dumping water in the middle of a drought here. Uh, that sounds like news to me. And then uh, they're like, oh, it's runoff and blah, blah, blah. Basically, from then on, uh, it gets to a very, really complicated noir plot. And it's not really worth uh, stating every little thing that happens in a, in a noir plot because that is kind of one of the things of the genre is that it's convoluted and confusing and the actual stuff that's going on isn't what matters. It's the mood it sets. Um, at any rate, uh, let me see. He figures out, he goes and meets uh, Miss Mulray's father, who's not, she's a widow, and he meets her father, and blah, 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 and he makes him some sort of offer, and then she, he goes to talk to her, and then he sees the saltwater pond, which is killing the grass, because the uh, Japanese gardener keeps going, very bad for grass, which is kind of racist, but, um, anyway, he figures out that uh, Mulray drowned in that pond, and then he figures out, I guess, that it was done by her father, who is also the, spoilers, um, mother of her daughter. So she's Wait. her daughter and her sister and her daughter and her sister. And it all ends up with a very convoluted thing in Chinatown where they're trying to escape and uh, she gets shot. And then the father, basically everything's fucked. And the father like goes and picks up the kid and goes like, come to daddy, even though he's a you know, raped his own daughter and he's his own granddaughter's dad. Ugh. So, uh, that's, Ugh. uh, that's Roman Polanski's kid, Chinatown, everybody. That's the Did whole we movie. say what happens to Mrs. Mulray? She gets shot. Yes. She's driving, they shoot at him, and she gets shot, and then, uh, the 
Papa takes over the data. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's move on to Hey, 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 How Would You Like? Hey, 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 how do we like it? Hey, Brady, how did you like this movie? I loved it. I loved it, loved it. Why? Um, It just, it's a smart, sharp script with uh, fantastic performances. Uh, it's, you know, like uh, what I said about my favorite movie, Her, this year, it is a lot of great individual components. Uh, but in terms of why I love it, it's kind of a non-summative thing, just... The uh, atmosphere it conjures up, uh, it's just the best noir I've ever seen, I think. Just the uh, the feeling of dread, because it's a movie about you know, learning you can't fight City Hall, and so it just goes about uh, weaving that spellbinding atmosphere in very interesting ways. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I really like Polanski so far. Like I've been going back through his work, or no, I've been starting from the start, and so I've seen like four now, and he's great. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's been pretty good. Um, I especially like uh, the fact that it's calling back upon the old noir genre by starting off with that three by four frame and the black and white credits, and it snaps to a black and white photo, kind of grounds us in that time, and uh, goes from there. Um, it very much references the genre as well as it participates in it. Um, films, uh, film noir in general, comes after wartime. Uh, all the other ones were after the World War One, or I mean World War Two, and while it was going on, even at some points in time, uh, this was just after the Vietnam War was over. Um, so stuff like that, and then we follow with a new genre like post uh, uh, Gulf War stuff, uh, Memento, and other neo noirs or post noirs. Anyway. Um, very much deals a lot with uh, alienation and all that kind of stuff. I'm not supposed to be talking about what it deals with right now, Homs. We're talking about how I liked it. Yeah, but... What, yeah. what was your letter grade? Did you say what? Oh, it, yeah, it's a total A. Oh, it's an A. Yeah, yeah, I think this is an A for me, too. Uh, just very well shot, very well acting. Um, very well acting. Yeah, that sounds great, Rob. Um, <laughs> no, but Jack Nicholson in the 70s is... You know, I like later Jack Nicholson, too, but I just love old-school Jack Nicholson. I loved him in Easy Rider. I loved him in this. Um, oh, yeah, no, the 70s is when he's amazing. Just great all around. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, so what's it all about? What is it all about? That's about alienation, and it's a film noir. Uh, alienation, duplicitous uh, uh, female, um, you know, femme fatale, as they call them. And uh, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, now, I'll chime in on alienation and say I, I definitely agree. And, you know, that great uh, idea of L.A. being a desert, and yet it's right next to the ocean. Uh, we're so close to water, and we're so close to human connection, we can practically touch it, but we can't really touch it. And so that lends to just this. It's one of the most overpoweringly fatalistic films I've I've ever seen. And yet it's really funny, like, you must have been laughing your ass off at me inside when I kept saying, you know, this is really, really funny. Like, I didn't realize this would be so funny because this very funny film has maybe the most devastating ending I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> Just really, like, because what happens, I'll, let's, let's explain the shot here. That's a cool shot, huh? Oh, the long As shot. As the car drives off. And Nicholson is uh, yelling at the cops because one of them is his buddy who he was trying to call off, right? 
And, he's, and he still showed up and had his men fire on the car, which only has Mrs. Mulray and her daughter in yeah, it. Yeah, just the one guy. Yeah, there are no they... bad guys in this car. And so as the car is almost a blip on the horizon, we suddenly hear the car horn start, and it just keeps going and going and going until we hear the young girl scream. Yeah, because her mother's been shot in the back of the head. Yeah. That's a hell of a shot, by the way. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Possible shot. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean like the actual the pistol shot. shot. Yeah. 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 But yeah, so it's it's about that. It's Possible. about the alienation. It's about y- that you can't win. It's really about the feeling that you just can't win. And like, yeah, it follows up that devastating shot with just, it's so simply devastating watching Noah Cross take the daughter away. Just like, yeah, no, and, and the monsters and pedophiles get the kids. And the government doesn't know what the fuck's going on, and you can't do a thing to change it. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I don't think this is meant in any sort of racial way, but uh, he talks about his past working on a division in Chinatown, and basically he says, things got too hairy, and I just couldn't handle that job anymore. And um, the downfall of the entire plot unravels, and everything just falls the fuck apart um, when he goes to Chinatown. And also there's that Chinese gardener guy who's, He's either Chinese or Japanese, probably meant to be Chinese, I would guess, by the title and the theme I'm trying to make a case for there possibly being. Um, The guy who's, like, very bad for grass. Just, like, kind of Chinatown is the harbinger of doom, (laughs) basically. Yeah, kind of a It's like going to hell. I don't think it's—I don't think it's meant to be anything against the Chinese. Uh, I think—I don't know why he picked that for it, but— Let's just call it an arbitrary decision, and it's a theme throughout this thing that, uh, you know, he tells a joke about a Chinaman. He's got a Chinese gardener who's talking about this is very bad for the grass. It's killing the grass. Also, it's what uh, Hollis uh, Mulray drowned in. Um, Yeah, the big puzzle piece. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then, he, you know, he left Chinatown long ago, and he goes to Chinatown, and this horrible thing happens, and he just kind of – you see Jack Nicholson's face in that scene, and he just goes – fuck <laughs> like god uh, and then they're just like like go home you have to go home and he's just like i yeah i uh i just uh uh it's like you know the perfect portrait of somebody who's in shock yeah it's and and you know in that way it ties those two main themes of alienation and the futility of fighting larger power structures together because it's he doesn't even as a detective he doesn't even have the power to save this woman, uh, like he can't protect anyone. You can't even do that much. Well, in there's terms that of human connection. There's that moment where um, he finally like lets his guard down and he's gonna go like I'm gonna do this and blah blah blah. And she's like I have to go. Will you just stay here? And then he's just like I just let my guard down. I told you about my past. I told you about this kind of stuff. And now you're just splitting. I don't know how I feel about this. Like I was trying to like get you to open up to me and you didn't. So now I don't trust you. And then he immediately follows her, and that's when he finds the kid. But when he comes back, and he's going like, who is that girl you kidnapped her, didn't you? And she's like, she's she's my mother. Or, I mean, she's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. Because she's just, like, so post-traumatized from being raped by her father. Well, and he um, was slapping her. Well, yeah, he was slapping her because he thought that she was lying to him when he had finally shown vulnerability. I mean, uh, throughout the entire film, uh, Brady talked about this when we were watching it, and he's like, Everybody pronounces his name differently because he's like a nowhere man. And he never fits in anywhere. And um, so he's totally alienated from everybody else. And he opens up to her. And then he feels like she's betrayed him by 
you know, going and checking on this kidnapping victim, and he's just like, stop lying! You know, he just, like, snaps and, and breaks. And um, to the point where, like, he can't even see something that's plain as day. Like, she's telling him directly, and he's a detective, and he can't figure it out because he's so wrapped up emotionally in the fact that he let himself be vulnerable and let himself in with somebody. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Is Cox on this cast? I mean, I haven't seen the movie in so long. I'm, I don't have a whole lot to contribute. Give us your letter grade, though. Um, oh, it's an A. Oh, yeah. I, I'm pretty it's sure it's been this years is... since I've seen it, but it's a great movie. Yeah, I think I'm r- just round, round and round and round for... I've never met anybody who's been like, that's a B+, uh, plus, yeah, man. My grading system's yeah, right. harsh. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, no. it's a perfect movie. It's uh, Yeah, it's exactly as it should be. One of my favorite shots was the one uh, when he's going through the orchard, and the camera is just on the seat behind him. And it's kind of got like this over the shoulder, so you see the back of his head and out the windshield. And he's driving through the orange grove, and then like some guy comes on a horse, and he right. turns around, and he's because he's driving around to all these different places, because uh, he's gone to the Hall of Records and stolen a page that shows all the people who bought up all the land in the valley that they're right. about to short water, and then therefore, like, you know charge a shit ton of money for water too yeah uh so anyway like but it's just a steady cam shot that's in in the car and he drives forward and he turns left and he backs up and turns around and it's all just done in one shot because the camera's just stuck on there and you you see him looking backwards when he leans back over the thing to reverse and it's just like cuts back and forth between that and horse riders running him down and <laughs> kind of a ridiculous funny lebowski-ish fight you know it made me – that made me think of uh, adaptation randomly just because, uh, like, uh, <laughs> Charlie Kaufman's brother's ridiculous serial killer script where the cop – he wants the cops and the killers to be running from each other, car against horse. It's like, yeah, it would be like a battle of car versus horse. And it made me think of that. Absolutely, that would be something to think about uh, when you're watching this. Yes. Uh, what do you think about the acting, Brady? How do you like Faye Dunaway? Uh, you know, I really like her a lot so far. I, what have I have I seen her in two things or three things? I've just seen her in two: this and uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. No, not whatever happened to Baby Jane. Uh, what's the other really campy one about uh, Joan Crawford? Uh, Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest. I haven't seen that. Uh, that's a good one. We should watch that sometime. <laughs> Wait, I mean, so it, it's not good, but it's good to watch. Yeah, it's, not, it's a it's a touchstone highlight of pop culture, for being so campy. It's bad but good. <laughs> I kind of like whatever happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the same thing, you know. Yeah, with reservations. Who is that? Betty Davis and uh, Joan Crawford. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well played. I'm right. So you like Faye Dunaway, mm-hmm. and we already said we like Nicholson. But do you have anything to talk about specifically with Nicholson, or? Uh, you know, I uh, know. I'll just say that I I like a lot of modern Nicholson, and I still do stand by about Schmidt as one of his best performances. But man, the lineup of '70s Nicholson is just insane. Like I've gone through what Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces. Uh, Ch- Chinatown. We've got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest coming out a year later. It's just insane. It's insane. So good. All right, all right, all right. Uh, let's split and go to Metacritical for a second, and then we'll come back and do some more stuffy stuff. All right. All right. 
Name an actor. Um, Johnny Depp. All right, I'm going to go ahead and go with the Pirates of the Caribbean here. Which one? The first one. Okay, Curse of the Black Pearl. We're guessing it's Metascores. Cox, do you want to go first? Oh, uh, well, how does it, is it like out of 100? And yeah, it's it works a lot like a grading rubric system. Like if you get a 60, <sighs> if everyone gives you a 60, you're going to get a 60. Which okay, is uh, like 86. Okay. I'm going to go with a 78. 78 for Rob. Brady's going 67. All right, let's look this shit up. <laughs> the original is not in Metacritic. What? What? I don't believe that. No, no, no. It, yes, it is. Yes, yeah, it, it is. totally is. You're just looking wrong. Brady, help him. Where is it? Oh, oh, it's the Curse of the Black Pearl. It wasn't just called Pirates of the no. Caribbean. Oh. Brady said already, Curse of the Black Pearl. I didn't hear that part. Okay, click on it. What's it say? It's 63. <gasps> All right, y'all. So. That did not score well. I really liked that movie. So that means I got. Uh, it's cool. 25? No. You got 15. 15. How do you score the points on this? Just the How difference. far you are you off. What did you guess? Oh, you guessed I like see. 63 okay. or something? Tess like got that? 23 for guessing 86. So is this like golf, the lowest score wins? Yeah. Okay. That's right. Uh, let me see. What's another Johnny Depp movie? Finding Neverland. Do you know what the Ooh. Metacritical score is for that? I kind of have an idea. All right. So fuck you. I'll pick okay. one because I don't read this website at all. Charlie and the no. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm gonna say. Twenty-seven. Forty-two. No, that's too high. Thirty. Thirty-two. Tess is thirty-two. Rob is twenty-seven, and Brady is. Brady will go fifty-five. Cause I can drive fifty-five. Sammy Hagar joke. Yeah, shut the fuck, Sammy Hagar. 72? What? What the no fuck? No way. No way. That's ridiculous. That That's is a That lie. is absolutely ridiculous. I, I that <laughs> movie is so bad. It's so bad. That movie is bad. So I'm 43 on that. I think Tess is thir- uh, 38. I said 32. Rob is 45. Tess is 40. I am negative 17. 
All right, I'm going to go with uh, Chocolade. <laughs> chocolade. Chocolade. Chocolate. That does not sound tasty. That sounds like chocolate. a brick of some chocolate. kind. I'm going to go with um, 90. With 90. I'm going to go 72. Brady? 90 for that movie? Ooh. I thought people liked it. I don't know. I'm yeah, they vaguely here. did. No, sorry. I'm going 72. Brady? Mm. Brady will go 64. Ooh, I'm going to make some points up on Brady with I'm this. I'm so bad at this. Chocolate got. <laughs> it's chocolate. Oh, I spelled it like I said it. I'm chocolate? sorry. Chocolate? <laughs> <You're really laughs> what the hell is chocolate. wrong with you? My brain doesn't work too well. And it was less than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory at 64. This site is fucked this up. 64? I got sense. it right. Oh, this I got a bullseye. Makes no sense. This site is fucked up, Brady. We gotta do fucking uh, Rotten Tomatoes. This site is accurate. It's way more accurate. I know. Than rotten that's tomatoes. why this doesn't work. <laughs> my 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 idea is perceived knowledge, not actual knowledge on websites. That's not fair. I mean, obviously, seventy-two is that doesn't work. All right, seventy-two for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory does not fucking work. They kind of used kid gloves on it at the time. Because uh, well, Burton yeah, but was, it, but it should it should evolve as time goes on and people rewatch it. Uh, wait, what? Wait, you're telling me as soon as they rank it, then it's just set that way? Because oh yeah, on Rotten Tomatoes, it changes over time. No. Yes. It, it it will if more influx of critics come in, or if you're tallying user scores, which are always coming in. But if we're talking about the critic score, uh. Well, fuck critics. Users are better critics than critics anyway. Uh, No. No, they're not. Disagree. I mean, a smart critical user person. How do you you keep only them? Okay, so what was the actual... It was 64. But, I mean, 72 for... Okay, the idea that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was handled with kid gloves back then, and so now in retrospect it's still at 72, is bullshit. This site is not doing things right. It's it's not the side, it's the critics. That's what the critics did. Right, but don't they go back and reassess the scores? Critics don't change their scores. What? Crit- critics. Time doesn't affect the viewing of a film? I mean, you know, you might have something like the Roger Ebert Great Movies column where... Like, All right, you know, Brady, your turn to pick a fucking movie. Okay. Uh, let's go with... Well, give me an actor. Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen... Mm. What Steve McQueen movie is going to be... That's another fucking problem, is that there's... Goddamn, they don't have anything, like, you know, prior to 1998. To their credit, I've... If you go farther back into the 60s and 70s, I'll try and, like, dredge up reviews to get a sense of what was thought of a movie, and there really just weren't very many critics or any... And you'll score it so you win? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's go with uh, Michael Clayton. No, nah, I went with Clooney. Um, he's not in the conversation. Um, I'm gonna go with um, eighty nine. Eighty nine from Cox. Larson's going eighty three. I I disqualified myself because I already hit something, so I'll just take whatever the lowest that what you guys get is. Okay, so you'll whoever whichever of us is lower, you get that score. Right. What 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 do you say? 
Brady? I said 83. What did Cox say? 89. It's 82. Okay, so I get negative one. Cox gets negative seven. It's 80. Wait. All right, last film. What was it? 82. I was close. You but were not as close 89. as Brady. Brady yeah. was closer. I was 83. Brady's looked at this before. Well. One more. Well, I cheat, but that's okay. This is just Brady's site. We got to do Rotten Tomatoes because Brady doesn't have a foothold in what it is. <laughs> you need to be handicapped. I do. I know. We'll come up with a game using Tumblr. It's okay. We'll just I'll do. Win. We'll just. We'll just do Metacritical with Rotten Tomatoes from now on. But nope. we'd have to change the song. No, we'll just leave it. That's so weird. Yeah, it'd be epic. Uh, test pick a movie. Um. I've got one. If you don't want to. No, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of a movie. I can think of post nineteen ninety eight. A single movie, Fern Gully. That I'm is not sure post nineteen eighty eight. You can't do it. My name is Butty. Yeah. Logic is erratic. That's Robin that Williams' rap. Fern Gully so is not good. on there. What? Okay. You're kidding me. Yes, it is. It has to be. Fern Gully. No, they did. That Metacritic's, Metacritic started <laughs> in like. Burr, burr, burr. So they. Okay, Avatar then. Avatar. Because it's Fern Gully. <laughs> Same thing. Fuck. Wait, so we have to rank Avatar based how it was ranked then, not based on critics who watched it on DVD or critics who, who watched it down the line or somebody who backdated their thing and, and looked it up. We have to base it on when it was released, and, and it doesn't change every time. <laughs> That's how the whole review system goes, I, except when That's not how Rotten Tomatoes goes, because if you, yes. just, take, if you just take the average user sco scores, people are adding that shit all the time. So then you have like a... a so anyway, you're saying it's totally different than that, and I have to think about when it was released. So I'm going to go with 78. I'm going to go with 99. Because people can't get enough of that shit. 99 avatars taste like shit, by the way. Uh, I'm going to go 85. 83. Oh my god, Brady, why are you so good at this? Because he looks at this site all the time and he knows okay. how it works. Okay, what's another one that everybody... <laughs> no, that's it, that's, that's five. Inception, what's that's the five one that movies. everybody loves? That's five movies. Inception? The movie that everybody loves. <laughs> Can't get enough of that shit. I got 80. Alright, we've got one more round. No, that's five. Oh, I thought we went to six. No, five, I said so at the beginning. Okay. Let's add it up. 80. Twenty-five. Now wait, let me add. Fuck you. Hey, fuck you. Um, eighty-nine, ninety-six. Cox, one hundred twelve. <laughs> hey, <laughs> terrible at this. Hey, hey Brady. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Fuck you. Metacritical. Fuck you. Hey everybody, everybody, we're back. Uh, that was a cool thing. Uh, wait, what did we just go do? Uh, what did we do? Metacritical? Yeah, we did Metacritical. Is that the uh, only break we've taken? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. All right. 
Uh, more about Chinatown. Yeah, so how about, Rob, there's an area in which you are an expert above all of us, and that is the area of noir. I've Take already said everything I have to say. Oh, yeah, you did uh, describe the historical context, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, that was my, that's my one really good point about but like, what about what about how this fits in with its cousins, other films of the noir genre? Like, do you find anything interesting about where it fits into its into its genre? Ooh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, what's the question? And do you find anything notable, interesting about how Chinatown fits into the noir genre and uh, fits in amongst its fellow films of well, that I mean ilk? I kind of already said that it, it references where it's coming from in the first scenes when it starts off the black and white credits, goes to the black and white photo, and dates itself. Uh, there's a lot of use of technology, um, but the technology of the time, as it were. Like, uh, Giddy says, oh, can you draw up a contract uh, on his little intercom system to his secretary, who uh -huh. then theoretically punches it up on a carbon copy um, real quick, because she's badass at being a typist. And he takes her for granted, by the way. Um, uh, there's that. There's the use of the watches. Uh, he places watches under car tires so that they get run over when the car leaves. And then he can tell what time they left. Um, stuff like that. Well, yeah, no, that is cool. Uh, so there's a use of technology that's kind of outside. Well, I mean, uh, later noirs have that. Uh, earlier noirs have less of that. Uh, there's a little less of him. Well, okay, there is a, a callback to the kind of Humphrey Bogart sort of uh, noir where, you know, the hero is, uh, in in essence, he's an anti-hero in his uh, isolationist sense. He also is able to basically decide, uh, based on the situation, whether or not he should use brawn or wit, whether or not he should talk his way out of it, and then if he has to go out slugging, he can. He's kind of a jack of all trades in that sense. And uh, uh, Jake Giddy, Jake Getty, Jake G G Giotti. I believe it's pronounced Jete. Yes, um, he's very good at all of those things. Uh, very much like Bogart was. Oh, you know, I know something else I wanted to talk about. Or wow, I actually once again wanted to have you talk about it. I'm basically delegating my talking to you. Uh, Send me an Five invoice. minutes left on the floor. Brady yields his time to Rob. Because <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think is one of the more powerful scenes of the film is when Jiddis almost drowns when he goes out to investigate You know how the water is being dumped. It's the scene where he gets his nose cut. But first he... Polanski cuts his nose. Polanski cuts his nose. But I'm interested in the scene... Uh, that's a great scene, though. <laughs> let me not mm -hmm. let me not skip quickly over that. But I want to know about when he almost drowns. He gets pressed up against a fence on a walkway that's above the canal. And you said, basically, uh, like a little b further over, and he'd be in the same position as the dead guy that he's trying to oh, learn right, about. Oh, right, right, yeah. So he was on the one side of the fence. Uh, uh, what's his name? Hollis. Um, Mer Mulray. Mulray, there we go. Hollis Mulray uh, drowns. He's he's on the side of the fence. Um, I mean, it turns out the body was dumped there. But anyway, he is found on the other side of the fence, this, the fence that's watching out to sea towards towards the uh, the beach and blah, blah, blah. And when Giddy's investigating, he's on the fence side, and he basically gets washed against the fence. 
and uh, he could have easily been uh, put across. Like like that fence is a divide between the class system of Mulray, who's in charge of the water, even though that's ironically what kills him. It's not ironic. Uh, it's just coincidental. But um, <laughs> it's what kills him, which is maybe there's something to be said about that. I'm, I'm not that really articulate right now, so I can't quite come up with it. But then Giddy's on the other side. Um, totally, as always been, he's just been a beat cop, and then he was a uh, publicity scrounging uh, uh, private dick, and, you know, basically... Uh, stop breathing on the mic, dude. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> and he's basically, um, you know, a bottom feeder. He, he's separated from Hollis Mulray in a way. He didn't make his own thing. He, he makes all his... Uh, living off everybody else, and people call attention to that several times throughout the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so did you find anything, like, thematically interesting about that idea of, you know, had he been a little bit further over, he might be dead, but because he's uh, on this other side of the fence, he survived? I mean, other than acknowledging it, no. Okay, because, like, it seems rich to me. I, I feel like there must be something to it because I really like it just as a matter of plotting. Uh, I think that's a really cool idea, uh, but maybe it's maybe it's just good plot writing. Well, I mean, like this, the fence separates them very much in the way that Hollis Mulray is a rich dude who's been able to take care of, um, you know, kind of building a company and uh, has uh, values and stuff. And Giddy is a lower class kind of person who um, doesn't have that much values and is totally willing to exploit adultery for his gain. And yet, that's what saves his life. Yes. Well, saves his life, but his life has never been all that rewarding, and the first time he opens up to somebody, uh, then it ends up fucking him in the ass, and he's totally as traumatized as he used to be when he used to work the beat in Chinatown. Right. Forget it. It's Chinatown. Uh, I really wish we had a lot more to say on this movie, but uh, let's go do understudy, and maybe we'll have a little bit more after that. Okay. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to catch the actors, try to guess the movies, tweet us at C A R N Y Couch. This game's called Understudy. It's happening, happening, happening. Right now. Ah, uh, how did it go? Did you, did you say you knew the philandrinon gets water or no? No! For God's sakes, I just wanted it yesterday. It almost went well. I gave a pretty good dream, but circumstances arose. Ah, uh, what kind of circumstances? <laughs> Maxine says she'll leave him if he leaves Malkovich. Plus, he's been challenged to a puppet duel by Mantini. The great Mantini? No, the mediocre Mantini. Of course, the great Mantini. Oh, yeah. He's he's pretty good. Uh, great, actually. I mean, I saw him do true with his 60-foot Robert Morse puppet. It was uh, sensational. But I think I have another plan. Do tell. I love a good plan. Why are you being like this? I... I... I, I just miss you. I'm I'm sorry. Tell, tell me the plan. Well, if Mantini wins, 
Schwartz will leave Malkovich, right? So if he needs it, I help man he maintain his performance a bit. Give him an edge. Spice up the show. Can you do that? I mean, do you know anything about puppetry? I'm the devil, Lester. I think I can handle it. I, I, I was just asking. I had no disrespect intending. Fine, let's drop it. Uh, fine. I mean, uh, it's not like I was gonna be uh, d- 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 doubting you. It's just that I knew that puppetry is a skill that takes a long time to acquire, and uh, lots of things like that. Fine. I'm not mad. Let's just drop it. Uh, fine. Uh, your mail's on the kitchen table, mostly uh, junk. Oh, there's a uh, a letter from Alex Trebek. That was unsaid. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y couch. All right, everybody, we're back. That was a fun round of understudy. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do uh, a little more chatter on uh, Chinatown here, talking about L.A. as a character. And uh, then we're going to tell you what we're doing next week. Yeah, so I'll say I went to school for seven years in L.A. And so... We're talking about this theme in Chinatown of isolation, of alienation, uh, and also just of the dryness of the area. How L.A. is a desert, this isolated desert that's almost tauntingly placed on the ocean, like something a Greek god would do, place this desert right near an ocean, but of course you can't drink any of it. And so, living there, I always said L.A. is much, much too big to be a single city. It's unbelievably large, spread out, so it... I think Polanski and um, like many other writers who have written about the city get its scattered stretch to the bursting point character. Uh, And that's there just right there in its geography and how big and yeah, sprawling it is. It's a big sprawl. Oh, yes, I've definitely been down there. Actually, the uh, East Bay Area is starting to get like that, too. And I predict maybe in 20 years, it'll get to be a lot like the L.A. kind of bullshit. Soon it won't be. They'll incorporate all that shit. It will be done. They will be done. Let's talk about L.A. So what do you think of L.A. as a character in this film? Um... I don't think it's so prevalent in this film. It's definitely prevalent in Long Goodbye, which was the last time we talked about that theme. Oh, really? I find it way more prevalent in this than in Long Goodbye, though. All right, so what's the character of L.A. like, then? The character of L.A., I mean, like I say, you know, it it smartly just goes almost back to the very basics, what L.A. is, even if you remove all the buildings. And, you know, it's a big, dried-up lake bed. It's a, yeah, it's a big mass of sand that's uh, sunken (laughs) into the ground. All right. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, I'll just say I don't know what it means thematically, but I like as a matter of shrewd, intelligent plotting that, you know, in choosing the city, I think Polanski also chose, or, well, I should say Robert Town, the writer, chose a very interesting crisis. A water crisis, I think, fits L.A. like a glove in kind of teasing out sort of the, yeah, it's desert character. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that in Raymond Chandler and stuff like that. Big Sleep, I think, opens the line that, like, uh, warm breeze blowing out of the desert when a dry part sun burns your throat. Just like your eyes as you sweat in your suit and walk up the stairs at these rich people's big-ass mansion. <laughs> Very good. 
Yeah, Raymond Chandler definitely used L.A. as a character. Uh, and actually, this rings very well. Like like I said uh, before, like the character of Jack Nicholson is very Humphrey Bogart-ish in the way he plays the stereotypical uh, noir, um, alienated, uh, unidentified with any particular group kind of... Um, he, he wears a different suit every scene, basically. <laughs> And, uh, oh, oh, there was something I did want to talk about. Um, after he gets his nose cut, he uh, engages in many behaviors of interviewing various different people, trying to figure out what's going on. And he's got this thing on his nose the entire time. Uh, it kind of represents a mask, as it were. Like, uh, he's hiding his injury. And he finally becomes vulnerable with Faye Dunaway and takes it off. And that's what I'm talking about, where, like, the movie really underlines, like, he's letting his guard down for her, and he's kind of pissed that uh, she was just like, I have to go check on something. That, and he thought it was the girl that she kidnapped, of course. But however, it was her daughter. Um, and he, you know, basically by him letting himself be vulnerable, he A, le- not only lets her down, but lets himself down. He is, uh, and also the taking off of the bandages was a, uh, a marker of that. Um, but he lets himself down. He also lets her down because as soon as he does that, he loses his judgment and he's unable to basically view things from outside of any particular interest, which is where he is at, at the beginning of the film. And then by the end of the film, he's ruined because he's allowed himself to be involved. Yeah, that's a good analysis. I think I said it like two or three times, but that's okay. On Project X, I said the same point maybe 17 times. So you guys are getting off easy this time. Also, Jake Giddy wearing different suits. Doesn't identify. Then he wears the same clothes for the last half of it. Because, well, he's invested now. Thought he found something nice. But nothing nice lasts. Not at all. Kind of like Max Payne in that. Not not, not the uh, movie, which I haven't seen, but the games, which I have played. I have seen, neither seen nor played. They're pretty interesting. However, the newest game... No cut, no big long cut scene at the end. What the fuck? Fuck you. Fuck you. Video games used to be like you beat the level and then you get rewarded with an awesome looking cut scene. I mean, I guess nowadays the gameplay looks as good as any cut scene, so it's not as much of a reward. But still, give me something. Don't give me just a minute clip of him walking up to a bar ordering a drink, looking at the news, going, Hey, look, that's that thing I just did in this game on the news. And then just ordering another beer because you're tired. Oh, forget it, Rob. Go home. It's Chinatown. Yeah. Forget it, Max Payne. Just keep wearing that Hawaiian shirt in Jamaica. Which I don't think they do there. So what the fuck? (laughs) Shave your head again. Start popping pills. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about next week. Shall we? Uh, next week we're doing Bull Durham. Oh, that's easy. How'd you come up with that? Uh, ben and Brock want to do that with us. Oh, yeah. We've, we've been meaning to do that with them for a while. We're finally going to do it. We're taking the leap across cast between the baseball diaspora well, and the leap, couch. Well, the leap we're taking is actually uh, very fourth dimensional. Is it? Yeah, I mean, we're we're a podcast that exists outside of these three dimensions. Have you have you heard of end brain theory? Uh, no. Well, that's basically like the idea of. I mean, think about it this way: if you were to live in a two dimensional universe, right? Yeah, let's say. 
and uh, you were to see a sphere, what would it look like? A circle. It would look like a circle. And as the sphere passed through your two-dimensional universe, uh, what would it look like? A circle. Well, a circle that would grow. Oh, wait, but I'm in the two-dimensional universe. Yes, but the circle is moving through the two-dimensional universe. So it starts off with a dot, just where it intersects with the universe. And it grows into a circle. Right. And it shrinks back down. So the four-dimensional universe would basically look like a dot growing into a sphere. And then bring it back down. And that's the kind of leap that we make when we jump to other podcasts. Right. Like that kind of blow your mind, holy shit, see behind the curtain of this reality sort of leap. Mm-hmm. So everybody should definitely tune in next week. For Bull Durham, which involves uh, tiny spheres. Yes, and... <laughs> <laughs> and and gloves that catch those spheres and uh, uh please handle the time spheres <laughs> with gloves <laughs> and male inadequacy and also uh the baseball baseball diaspora and that diaspora is actually a fourth dimensional diaspora so they move through time as they uh diasporate away from their original place of origin and are scattered by genocide don't diasporate without a friend um <laughs> I think it's a good place to end. Three, two, one. Theme song. <laughs> Carnivorous couch. Shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch. With Brady and Rob. Don't beat me with a stick. Well, we'll see what happens.